Section 7 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Goss45. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 7. Forecastle Traits. There is truth in a short character of the English sailor that I find in a little volume bearing the highly marine name of The Quid, published fifty years ago. I have traveled far and near, and never knew one nation that could shake you by the hand like the English. It is not the hand, but the heart, and above all, which surpasses, is the homely clasp of a British sailor. It is not the hand and heart only, it is the soul. In the clasp you feel the man, and with it a desire not to relinquish at least hastily, possession of what you feel assured is the genuine token of sincerity and true friendship. This sentiment certainly might have found a more elegant expression, but the neater form could not have added to its truth, for staunchness, simplicity, sincerity, esprit de corps, for all those qualities which combined produce on shore the honest friend, at sea the loyal messmate and shipmate, the English sailor, I think, is not to be matched. One reason may be that his life is like no other man's. He is locked up on a ship for weeks and perhaps months, sees the same faces over and over again, gets to know the qualities and characters of his associates, shares with them in whatever peril they may encounter, in their toil, their fooling, the pathos and the pleasures of the sea. The weariness of the calling may indeed produce quarrels and engender ill blood, but the influence of the long intercourse is sure in its effects. A man will do for a shipmate what he would not do for another. They may be fresh from a bitter fight. Let either be in extremity, the other will adventure his life for him. Let either be in want, the other will share his last dollar with him. Were it otherwise, how could the English sailor have been the man he was, the man he is? Our British annals teem with illustrations of forecastle devotion, and in sailor's language the word messmate must always mean the word friend. I will not, indeed, deny that steam has somewhat modified this aforemast feature. The longest passage is now counted in days. Crews are rapidly paid off, change their ships, and are comparatively strangers to one another when they step ashore. But the sailing vessel is not yet dead, and whilst she remains afloat, journeying by the way of the Cape into the Indian and Southern Oceans, or struggling around the Horn for South Atlantic waters, you may look with confidence for perpetuation of the old forecastle spirit. There is one quality of the vocation, however, that seems to have shrunk very surprisingly of late years. I mean the humor of a sailor. That he was at any time the drinking, capering, jigging, Saturday night, kins of grog, and wives and sweethearts men we find him in the sea songs and the old tales not to be supposed. This caricature of the salt grew out of warlike times when the battle was when the battle was everywhere, raging loudly and long, and when it was everybody's business to teach the sailor to believe that going to sea meant merely a long and jovial course of prize money, jarms of flip, hornpipes, glory, polly, and greenwich hospital. The literary and other artists overdid the portrait. They laid their pigments with trowels. It answered the purpose of the nation to accept the singular figure as a first-rate likeness. But I do not think that the sailor's humor, his power, whether by his manner, his face, or by force of his calling, of importing into his mirth or misery an element of jocosity that rendered the relation of his experience 
whether by his own or by the lips of others, unusually diverting, even when largely tinctured by pathos, was exaggerated at any time. At this day, it is true, you will sometimes find a laugh in his habits or theory of life, as, for instance, in a case heard not long ago by the licensing magistrates, to whom application was made by an East End landlord who declared that, though he prohibited dancing in his establishment and did his utmost to repress it, his customers were too much for him. They were sailors and sailor sweethearts, and so soon as the music struck up, they cleared away the tables, making nothing of the screws which secured them, and fell to sliding about with extraordinary appetite and enjoyment. But you must turn back our marine history by a few chapters for examples of what I may call the general characteristic of humor in sailors, for a particular flavor in speech and behavior, as distinctly ocean-born as the breeze that blew them to port, or the foam that whitened their ship's wakes. There is a story told by a blind sailor. It is worthy in a place in Elliot's collection. The author of Barba's would here, I think, have found just one of those alley-like incidents of human life which his tender and plaintive genius delighted in. A man named Robert Howell was charged at the Surrey Sessions with stealing a bundle of wearing apparel and seven or eight pounds in money from Francis Cook, a blind sailor. Cook asked leave to tell his story in his own way. This being granted, with a preliminary scrap of the footing and drag at a forelock, he started thus. Please, your worship, my name is Frank Cook. I have served His Majesty for many years, and have seen some hard service before now. You see this mark, pointing to his right brow? About five years ago we engaged with a French frigate, and when she had struck we went on board her. But, like a treacherous enemy, as she always was, when we got on deck they attacked us, and in the fight I was struck just there. Here he pointed again, with a boarding pike. It entered my head, and I fell overboard. On being taken up seven splinters, mixed with pieces of my hat, were taken out of my skull, and I immediately lost the sight of that eye. The other soon followed, and I became blind, but still remained on board as captain's mate. Bob Howell and me had been friends for years. We were messmates. When I was about to be discharged from the hospital ship at Sheerness, the doctor, knowing we were old friends, appointed Bob to be my guide and assistant as far as Bristol. We left the ship in a boat, and landed somewhere in London, but I could not tell where. We had not gone far through the streets when we came to a gateway, and Bob took my stick from me, tore my pocket, where I had my money sewed up, off my jacket, and ran away with my bundle of clothes. After remaining on the spot for near two hours, I made my way as well as I could. As I went along, I fell foul of a poor woman's tea-table, and had liked to have thrown the poor creature's tea-things all about her. But I thank heaven I did her no mischief. However, I told her my lamentable story, and she pitied me. A poor little ragged boy came up, and she begged of him to conduct me to Bow Street. The poor dear fellow led me along, and when I told him my story, the good-natured soul put a penny-piece in my hand. We went along until I found myself on Bow Street office steps. Here is a place where you'll be sure to get red dress, said the boy. There was no one at the office then, so I asked for the next public house, and he took me to one just opposite. I must leave you now, he said. I was sorry for it. But do you know he soon came back again, and the dear generous fellow put another petty piece in my hand and bid me good-bye. Poor fellow, I shall never forget his generosity. 
I then got some porter with the money he gave me, and soon after was brought to the office where I told my story. I have lived like a prince since. I think you find the simplicity of the typical old salt in perfection is this, the simplicity that made both the humor and the pathos of his nature. It is not so much that he was robbed by a shipmate as that he was plundered by one who could steal from a blind man, and a fellow who could so act might indeed go to sea and pull ropes and furl sails and fire off guns. But who would call him a sailor? A blind seaman was fully alive to this. The instant Howell spoke up, he cried out, "'That's him! That's his voice! I knew it well! He's a British sailor!' I think I heard the scorn in those tones, how long since silent, and see the pity and scorn working in the rugged, honest, scarred, and sightless face, blindly turning its sorrow and indignation upon the skulking miscreant who had disgraced the fairest of seamen's traditions, his honor and generosity as a shipmate. You find the old qualities present in the yarn of a jack, arriving unexpectedly with his pockets lined. He had been away since the beginning of the war, and he was supposed dead. Immediately on his arrival, he sought his wife and child, but they had some time before quitted the home in which he had left them, and nobody could tell him where they had gone. He made up his mind to discover them, and started on the seemingly hopeless quest. By chance, after such aimless wandering, he found himself in the neighborhood of the Seven Dials, and, whilst passing a street, he heard a woman crying watercresses. He listened, believing it was the voice of his wife, but could scarcely credit his senses until, on her approaching, he recognized her. Uttering a loud hurrah, he made a jump, snatched the masket from her arm, threw the cresses into the street, and hugged her to his heart. The poor woman was, of course, much affected, and wept copiously, but she was easily prevailed on to repair to a public house and recruit her shattered nerves with a drop or two of gin. After Jack had plied her with questions, he hauled her away to a clothes shop, rigged her handsomely from stem to stern, pitched her old attire into the street, then called a coach and rode away in triumph, with one leg out of the window, to show his quality, swearing that now he has found his wandering rib, and he was the happiest dog alive, and it him, but Pull and he would have a night of it. Equally characteristic is the story of the sailor's wife, who, having seen her husband off at Portsmouth, walked to London with the intention of proceeding to Northampton. Her funds failed her, and, to complete her distress, a child was born. A couple of sailors, hearing of her misery and learning that she was the wife of a brother tar, gave her all the money they had, which, with a free passage by the coach, enabled her to return home. We met January 6, 1602, with a violent storm, writes M. Francho Perard de Lavelle in his voyage to the East Indies, in which one of our seamen fell overboard, and his companion would have jumped after him if we had not prevented him. Though, after all, I took his offer to be the effect of wine rather than of true affection, for there is but little friendship among seafaring men. So writes this old Frenchman, and I know not but that he may be right so far as regards the sailors of his own nation. But of English seamen, either Perard de Laval's theory is very much the other way, or the muse of naval history must have been of extraordinary, almost impossible, nimbleness and fecundity as a liar. Take such a brick as this as an example of a great and spacious building, surely not altogether in the clouds. In 1805, a seaman named Campbell, belonging to the Tribune, was tried by court-martial at Spithead for desertion, and sentenced to receive one hundred and fifty lashes. As a crime with which he stood charged upon the books of the ship precluded him from sharing in prize-money, 
the ship's company gave him each man a dollar and the midshipmen five dollars each this act adds the writer is characteristic of british seamen i am pleased too with this little old world passage yesterday the crew of the africa after being paid their prize money at portsmouth carried the boatswain who had behaved to them with great humanity through the principal streets in procession and then made him a present of a gold chain one sees that pleasant gathering the jolly tars rolling along grinning as they go perhaps a fiddle or two ahead of them and a great drum whacked by a soldier with hearty love of noise a chaired or elevated boatswain with quid high in cheek gazing like macabre not severely and trying to look as if on the whole he was used to it much later on though still in the same century there was another boatswain possibly of the pattern of the gentleman with whom the mariners marched in procession it was at the close of the first american war and our boatswain who had belonged to a seventy four on being paid off came to london repaired to monmouth street and there purchased a second-hand court dress of a knight of the garter his hair was dressed by a skilful artist and in full fig he went to drury lane theatre and seated himself in one of the stage boxes in all probability the honest seaman would have continued to excite the awe and reverence of all beholders as a person of honour a spark of quality but for two lively hardies who were seated in the front of the two shilling gallery they had belonged to the same ship as the nobleman in the box and after a good long stare at the splendid figure they came to the conclusion that he was an old acquaintance they could give no heed to the performance they were lost in contemplation of the well-laced magnificent creature sitting lonely and majestic in his box there was something so astonishing in the transformation however that doubts arose in their minds and they determined to hail him to make sure one way or the other accordingly putting his hand to the side of his mouth one of them sang out ho the boatswain of the achilles ahoy to which the boatswain forgetting his fine clothes immediately answered hello but let me give foreign jack a turn if you here and there in history meet with an english sailor robbing a blind shipmate so do you also here and there meet a dutchman to use jack's generic term behaving as if he was a british seaman a fine example offers in the following anecdote when de trois bombard algier du chasseur was ordered into the harbour to set fire to one of the enemy's ships it was a mighty desperate undertaking the enemy's ship surrounded him and he was taken prisoner he was sentenced to be blown to pieces at the cannon's mouth an old pirate of all men in the world who had formerly been du chasseur's prisoner and kindly used followed the frenchman to the place of execution and whilst the people were lashing the captive to the gun ran to him and holding him in his arms called to the gunner to make haste for he said since i cannot save my benefactor i will perish with him the effect of this piece of heroism on the mind of the Degazar was such as to procure the prisoner's release. I believe the story to be true. Had Duchesseur related it of a fellow countryman, posterity might please itself in deciding upon it. The French imagination of that period, however, devoted its powers of exaltation to heroes living nearer to Paris than Algerin. But all the good pickings in this way are in the English naval story. Your lordship writes captain dalrymple december eighteenth seventeen seventy nine to lord george germain will pardon my mentioning an instance of an elevated mind in a british tar which amazed the spaniards and gave them a very high idea of english valour not contented with one cutlass he had scrambled up the walls with two 
and meeting a Spanish officer without arms, who had been roused out of his sleep, had the generosity not to take any advantage, but presenting him with one of his cutlasses, told him, You're now on a footing with me. There is a singular sequel to the story. Sir Peter Parker, hearing of this, appointed the man to be boatswain of a sloop of war. A few years after, either in a fit of madness or intoxication, he forgot himself and struck his lieutenant with his fist. For this he was tried, sentenced, and executed. So it is stated in Schomburg's Chronology, a genuine example of the curiosities of marine literature. There is a story of one Daniel Byron, an old seaman who was at the Siege of Acre. At the first storming of breach by the French, one of their generals was killed. The Turks, in triumph, cut off his head, stripped and mingled the body, and left it to be eaten by dogs. It lay exposed for several days. When parties of the sailors who had been on shore returned to their ship, old Dan would repeatedly ask them why they had not buried the poor Frenchman's remains, to which their only reply was, Go and do it yourself. At last Dan swore he would, observing that, after all, the French always gave their enemies a decent burial, and they were not like those etc. Turks who left a man to rot above board. Next morning he dressed himself in his best, as if bent on a pleasure jaunt, and obtained leave to go ashore with a surgeon in the jolly boat. He was watched by the boat's crew, who gave the following account of his proceedings. The old man procured a pickaxe, a shovel, and a rope, and insisted on being let down out of a porthole close to the breach. One or two of his companions, who were younger, offered to attend him. No, he answered, you are too young to be shot at. As for me, I am old and deaf, and my loss would be no great matter. Dan was accordingly slung and lowered, the firing being very active at the time. His first trouble was to drive away the dogs. The French perceiving him took aim, but an officer, guessing his attentions, was seen to throw himself across the file. Instantly the thunder of the metal ceased, and there was a death-like calm whilst the old sailor hid the remains of the body in the earth. He covered the grave with mold and stones, placing a large stone at the head, another at the feet, and then drawing forth a piece of chalk he laboriously wrote. Here you lie, old crop. This done, he was hoisted into the town, and the firing recommenced. A few days after Sir Sidney Smith sent for old Dan to his cabin. Well, Dan, he said, I hear you have buried the French general. Yes, your honor. Had you anybody with you? Yes, your honor. Why, I was told you had not. I had, your honor. Who had you? God Almighty, sir. Give Dan a glass of grog. The venerable Salt's story ends in the pleasant old way. He is now a pensioner in the Royal Hospital at Greenwich. What a noble race they were! How loyal, generous, brave, sincere! Is there any change in their qualities? Only one, I think. The old humor seems to be dying out. End of section 7 Recording by Goss 45